0: Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's episode 17, or solo episode 17, I should say. And you're listening to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. Yeah? My name is Daniel Rogers. Yeah, we've we've done this before. If you are joining us new, I'd like to invite you to be part of our Facebook group, which you can find via the uh, Googles or the Facebook searches. And if you're not into that, Uh, You can always follow me on Substack, .substack danielcrogers.substack.com. You can subscribe to the posts and to the podcasts, etc., for free. But there will be something fun coming October the uh, 20th. I'm going to be posting the introduction to my new book, To Paid Subscribers Only. It's the only post of its kind. Every other post is accessible by all. And, uh, yeah, people who join in, via the paid, can start reading my book. I'm about 30,000-something words in. You can help me find typos. (laughs) You can suggest stuff like, hey, that wasn't that clear, or that part sucked, and I will do my best to help you. Okay, today's episode, solo episode 16, uh, 17. Wait, what? Hold on. 17, solo episode 17. is called A Guy with a Beard and a Boat. Some thoughts on Noah. All right, here's a fun kid song. <laughs> I'm gonna sing the parts. You gotta repeat, and you know we're gonna exaggerate some parts. All right. You're gonna hold up your little finger for Noah. Okay. You're gonna cup your hands for the boat. Then you know, I think you'll know what to do on the other parts. We we actually sang this song when I was growing up. All right. My uncle taught it to us. Here we go. Here is Noah. That's your part. Here is Noah. There you go. Here is the boat. Down came the rain. You know, do the spirit fingers all the way down, right? And the boat, it float. Here's the fun part. And the people cried. You have to look distraught as you do that. And then you go, and the people drowned. Hold your nose on the last word for sure. And then you got, like, a, here comes Jesus, or here comes Noah walking. Out walk Noah. Yeah. On the dry ground. There you go. So when you do the out walk Noah part, you got to sing that part cheerfully. You know, imagine a guy like you know swinging his arms while walking down the sidewalk, like a typical movie from the fifties and sixties. Okay, you know, features the perfect American neighborhood, and yeah, there's a fun song, or maybe, uh, uh, you know, maybe not so fun. <laughs> most kids' uh, songs talk about children in the muddy, muddy, or how the animals came by toosies. Uh, this one, this one points out the fact that you know that's left off of most of these songs and the nursery walls. Uh, People drowned. In our post-Oppenheimer world, the idea of killing an entire city of people with no discrimination is a bit unsettling, to say the least. As Hawkeye observed in the hit show MASH, there are no innocent bystanders in hell. But war is chock full of them. Little kids, cripples, old ladies, in fact, except for a few of the brass, almost everybody involved is an innocent bystander. So when I read the flood story, I can't help, you know, but cringe a little bit, or you know maybe a lot. When we read the stories of the Exodus or the Christmas narrative, we think how awful it is that Pharaoh or Herod would kill all the young Hebrew males, right? And in light of the abortion debate, some have used these stories to make a fairly straightforward point: Pharaoh, kill the babies, King Herod, kill the babies, Democrats, kill the babies. But there's a problem. Didn't didn't God kill the babies in the flood? I mean, okay, follow me here. If all life is sacred, and if murder is intentionally taking the life of an innocent human being, and if babies are sinless, my tradition my tradition uh, rejects original sin. If you're listening to this outside of the Church of Christ, then was the flood not God? You know, intentionally taking the lives of every human on earth, including the innocent human babies. What do we what do we do with this? So imagine my surprise when I was asked to talk about how God is surprisingly faithful in the Noah story to a bunch of teens visiting our congregation for youth devotional. So this blog post <laughs> slash podcast is how I approach the subject. I hope what I came across in my research will help resolve this tension for you, as it began to do for me. So first, can we just be honest? Like, please, can we be honest that the picture of God we get through Jesus, who is the perfect representation of who God is, per Hebrews 1, verse 3, really doesn't match with the God we read about in Genesis 6, at least in the way we are expected to read it, okay? And I totally understand that this may just be my humanity talking here, all right? But if we can we just be honest, that the God who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust is kind to ungrateful and evil men who loves the whole world, who is love and desires all to be saved, doesn't seem to be the kind of being that would kill every single person on earth, including children with a flood. I'm not saying that it didn't happen like that. All I'm saying is that I can't be the only one who thinks that there has to be more to this story, right? I mean, even when I was a kid singing that song I quoted earlier, I felt like it was a little bit brutal. Another song we sang, Jesus Loves the Little Children, talks about how Jesus loves all the children of the world. Well, what about those children who must have been scared as the floodwaters surrounded them, separated them from their parents, and filled their their lungs with water? Would Jesus' father send violent waters to sweep an infant out of her mother's arms and into the depths below? I'm just trying to be honest by saying I have a tough time accepting this. After all, I was told by a pretty important person that I'm supposed to love my enemies. And when Jesus wept over Jerusalem during the last day of his, days of his life, I think that means that God must have wept too. So how on earth do we read this story and keep our sanity or even our faith? If we have to read Genesis the, the Genesis story in the same way we read say the resurrection accounts, then I think we have some irreconcilable problems. But thankfully there is another way. This is an old, old story, okay? The, this story of the flood is ancient. In fact, it's actually older than the Bible itself. Regardless of when you think the flood account of Genesis 6 through 9 was written down, the story predates it by hundreds and possibly even thousands of years. Sumerian, Babylonian, Assyrian, and other ancient accounts of this flood, uh, of this flood story exist and have been provided to us by archaeologists and historians across the ages. Pete Enns and Jared Bias in their book Genesis for Normal People wrote Israel's ancient neighbors also had flood stories very similar to the biblical one. And Israel's flood story was written after these other stories, as is also true with the creation story of Genesis 1. These older versions come from ancient Sumeria, Assyria, and Babylon. Okay, so why does this matter? All right. So while while so many of us ask questions about what happened in history, or how it happened, understanding that these other stories existed alongside and even predated the flood story help us shift the question to why would there be a need for yet another flood story? Typically, when we talk about Genesis, we get distracted with questions about light being created on day one while the sun was made on day four or questions about how Noah dealt with all that poop or why God would preserve mosquitoes. But when we shift the question, then a whole new range of answers and meaning comes to life. Like, why did people find this particular version of the story compelling enough to preserve it in writing and pass it down for thousands of years? Why did they write this story when other versions already existed? What were the biblical writers and the Holy Spirit trying to accomplish in creating and preserving this story in Scripture? So one way to think about what the Bible's doing with stories like the flood story or the creation account is to think about common joke setups we all know. A guy walks into a bar. Why did the chicken cross the road? What's black and white and red all over? When you start one of these jokes, people typically uh, groan a little bit. But if you change the punchline, then you can typically get a laugh or at least another groan and maybe even an eye roll if you're lucky. So what's black and white and red all over? A newspaper? No, it's a zebra with a sunburn. A guy walks into a bar. Ouch. Two guys walk into a bar. It was a knock-knock joke. <laughs> okay. Oh, I love that one. If you want more jokes like that, uh, send me a message. I'll send you a video. It's not appropriate to put in uh, you know, uh, Christian postings. But if you ask me for it, I'll give it to you. So the Bible does this with old stories all the time. Wait, does that mean it's not appropriate for me to send it to you privately? Ah, who cares? Whatever. I'll send it to you anyways. You're an adult. Uh, so the Bible does this with, with old stories all the time, right? In the beginning, God fought chaos, ripped it in half, made half of it heavens and half of it the sea. Uh, no. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence with the gentleness of a mother dove who cares for her young, who broods over the face of the deep. The same thing is going on with the flood story. At some point in our collective memory as humans, there was a big flood. And this isn't too far-fetched, is it? If you consider that most people lived around rivers like the Nile, Euphrates, or Tigris, then of course there would be stories about floods. Most years, the rains would bring floods. That would be beneficial to civilization. The flood waters leave behind nutrients for the soil, and the worms and vegetation that are swept away make good food for the fishies. Right? The children don't get stuck in the muddy, muddy. <laughs> but then there's those years when it rains way more than usual. During those years, the rains come down and the floods come up, and the foolish man's house goes splat. So couple of those kinds of events with ice age to the meltdown, and you have the makings of a good story to tell around the campfire. But in those days. The questions about why these kinds of floods happened were not like the questions we ask. We may talk about the weather cycle, patterns of flooding, ice caps melting, uh, ice caps melting, high tide, low tide, and any other number of scientific explanations behind catastrophic flood events in our recent memory. Right, Katrina and maybe the tsunami of 2004 are testimonies to the destructive power of floodwaters. But we still gravitate towards more natural explanations involving earthquakes, broken levees, and early warning systems. But in the days before James Pen and the Doppler radar, the best guess for the cause of these kinds of floods is that, da-da-da-da, the gods must be angry. And that's how these ancient stories function. Maybe the gods just randomly decided to flood the world with no explanation given. Perhaps they were worried about overpopulation. And in one story, they were simply aggravated that the humans were just so noisy. Oh, my goodness. We probably need another flood today, right? So anyone who's familiar with a cat's tendency to get to zoomies at 3 a.m., right, you know what I mean. When, when things get noisy at inappropriate times, you're like, come on, let's put it into it, right? And in these stories, the gods originally agree to kill off all the humans. Okay, It's only due to a leak, <laughs> couldn't help myself it's only due to a leak that humans learn of the flood and barely escape it but there ain't no leaks in gopher wood right so in the bible's version of the story the gods aren't being petty they don't make rash decisions instead the god who frees slaves is concerned because violence and wickedness is spreading in ever-increasing proportions stick with me here for example, Scripture says, The Lord saw the wickedness of humans was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. Genesis 6-5. Genesis hey, by the way, write that down. Like, Make a mental note. Genesis 6-5. Seriously, hold on to that. Okay? Uh, Genesis six eleven. You don't have to hold on to this one, but you can remember it if you want to. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Let me read that 6 5 one again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Okay? Keep that in mind. So, the biblical authors reasoned that the flood must have come. That is, this flood that's on everybody's collective memory, right? It must have come because of a justice issue. And God's preservation of Noah wasn't because he was double-crossing the other gods, because there's not other gods, right? But because Noah found favor in God's sight because he was righteous, even though everyone around him had abandoned the image of God. Romans 6, 8, 9 Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So then after the flood comes, and Noah and his family are saved, they they get off the archiarchy, the punchline surprises us all. God says this will never happen again, and he hangs his bow up. Can you picture that Mental war imagery, hanging the bow up, right? This promise is actually made twice, okay? One with the rainbow, one without. It's interesting to me that this first quote is unequivocal. You'll see that in a second. Whereas the second quote presents a possible exception that's used by Peter later in the Bible, right? So the first one here, when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again, listen, I will never again curse the ground because of humans. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. That's how one version of the flood story ends. This ain't ever happening again. No way, no how. I'm never cursing the earth Again, because of humans. It's pretty emphatic, right? The, the non, uh, Genesis 9, verse 11, that account. He says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. There's a little bit of difference there, right? So the story ends, well, almost, we'll get to that in a second, with God saying, this is never happening again. The first time he says it, no exceptions given. Second time he says it, he specifies that the earth wouldn't be destroyed with water. So some people, including one possible way of reading Peter, say, well, he won't destroy it with water, but he'll get it with fire. (laughs) Right? So, I don't really see it that way. Okay? But that's a discussion for another time. Okay? Uh, Instead, let's make a quick connection. That thing's pretty cool. All right? Remember, I told you to keep that passage from Genesis 6 in mind. Right? Right? So check it out. Compare these two passages, Genesis 6, 5. Listen one more time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in earth and that, here we go, every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Fast forward, Genesis 8, 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humans, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I destroy every living creature as I have done again. All right. The very reason for the flood in Genesis six is also the reason God cites for committing to never destroying the earth again. Okay? Do you see how interesting that is? Remember what he said? He says, he says, I'll never again curse the ground because of humans. Feeling for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. In other words, God commits to stopping the cycle of violence. Or another way to say it. The flood didn't stop humans from being bad. The whole point of the flood story, then, the whole point of the flood story, then, is to say that God doesn't actually work that way, that floods aren't effective discipline tools, and that God can bear with us despite the evil inclinations of our heart. <laughs> it's about presenting a grown-up version of God. It's about changing how the people viewed God, whether they were in Egyptian captivity or Babylonian captivity or Assyrian captivity or whatever, and they picked up on these stories, the biblical authors are like, no, that's not how God works. Here's a story about it with a different punchline to show that's not how it works, right? And of course, as you know, after the rainbow comes, they all live happily ever after. Okay, well, not really, but it's kind of inappropriate to draw, uh, you know, Noah passed out naked, drunk in his tent on nursery walls. That, that one doesn't make it into Sunday school uh, curriculum. Okay. <laughs> so Noah, the righteous, the blameless, and uh, the drunkard. There's another song I sang growing up. Um, this is the one I was referring to, uh, in last week's podcast with the whole, don't run around with a fishing rod. It goes, don't drink booze. Don't drink booze. Spend your money on a pair of shoes. Okay. Yeah. Pretty reasonable. Although that, that'd be a lot of shoes. Um, <laughs> If you're raised in the non-institutional Church of Christ, the lyrics were "Don't drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol." It'd be like spending God's money on a fellowship hall. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Hey, by the way, that one was approved by somebody uh, from that tradition. So there you go. Don't drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol. It's like spending God's money on a fellowship hall. If that don't, if that don't make the kids sing, I don't know what will. Okay. So apparently. Noah didn't know any version of this song because the author of Genesis tells us that Noah was a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it over, over their shoulders, walked backwards covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Genesis 9, 20-23. So Noah became drunk. And while some say that Noah wasn't aware of the effects of the wine because he was the first to make it, I find it hard to excuse Noah for what he did. In Genesis 3, nakedness brought a sense of shame upon Adam and Eve. And Habakkuk 2.15, along with Lamentations 4.21, also comment on the sense of shame related to nakedness coupled with inebriation. You can find those references, by the way, if you go and look up the article on DanielCRogers.substack.com. Links in the description. But apparently is isn't too concerned with hiding his father's shame and some commentators suggest that there's a little bit of an innuendo there and there may be something going on a little bit extra but i think we're getting too much into the wrong kinds of questions we're already we're already off track here again let's think why this story might be included is it really necessary part of the story here we go In some other ancient flood stories the protagonist receives immortality uh unepish them He's the one from the epic of Gilgamesh, Unepishtim. I think I'm saying that right. I looked up the pronunciation like six times. So Noah, though, he's a guy like you and me, who might be considered righteous and blameless in one instant, and, well, uh, you know, right? Noah isn't some special, almost demigod who survives the flood and has immortality. He gets drunk, passes out naked, and when he wakes up from his wine and curses his grandson, uh, you know, for his dad's actions, he kind of shows his humanity there. To be honest with you, though, I don't really think that Noah was in a place to be handing out curses, uh, you know, but maybe that's that's just me. Here's another part of this, right? Uh, Noah said to, to his grandson, Cursed be Canaan, Lois his slaves, shall he be to his brothers, Genesis 9.25. See, now you see why this story might have been included. So it serves as a way, possibly, to explain why the Canaanites were destined to be conquered, killed, and even enslaved by Israel. It's like, it's like. Reading it back into it in a way, right? As Enz and Bias wrote, the flood story is Israel's vehicle for talking about how their God is different from the gods of the other nations. It's also a vehicle for the later Israelite writers to explain why the hated Canaanites deserved everything they got, included being violently driven from their homeland so it could be given to the Israelites. They have been an accursed race since the beginning because Ham saw Noah's nakedness. Like, obviously, right? Now, if you're like me, <laughs> then a lot of this information has probably been helpful to you about the historical and cultural backgrounds. Okay, Knowing that it's basically commentary on the other flood stories that serves to answer the question of what is God like is a huge step forward towards a healthier way to talk about the flood and other ancient stories. And it gets away from all the senseless debates about the window and the door and what the ark was shaped like and how you fit all these animals and what what about penguins since they weren't discovered until whatever time and how did they get from one area to the other and all this stuff right was it all species of dogs or just some dogs or whatever why did god take noah why did god take uh mosquitoes on the ark all that stuff okay for these people that wrote these things so this is a huge step forward one even might call this story in comparison uh to the other stories floating around <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> You might even call this story like progressive or revolutionary, right? But if you're like me, then there's still a voice in the back of your mind going, okay, what about the babies, right? What what about the people who died in the flood? What happened to them? I, that didn't really do it for me there. Well, I can't answer this question with 100% certainty, okay? But I can offer one more passage to you that offers some thoughts on the flood story. This is from First Peter three eighteen through 20 For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight lives were saved through water. 1 Peter 3, 18-20 1 Peter 4, 6 for this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed, even to the dead, so that though they have been judged in the flesh, as everyone is judged, they might live in the Spirit, as God does. Now, there's several ways to take this passage. One has to do with Jesus preaching to the Holy Spirit to the people of Noah's day through Noah, because Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. But I find this to be you know, the most dubious of the three options typically presented. The other... Popular option, and probably the most popular among scholars today, is that Jesus proclaimed victory over the fallen angels. Check out 1 Peter 3 22. Talks about principalities, powers, and whatnot. Uh, this is a better option than the one mentioned above. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, because there is some evidence that the actions of fallen angels led to the flood. Check out the, the uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and possibly 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5. But to be honest, just to be honest with you, I personally don't buy the Nephilim story or the divine, the divine council uh, theories in Genesis 1 or 6 or some of the Psalms. I know I'm the minority here. Among a lot of my readers and listeners and a, among a lot of the scholars today, I just don't find the arguments compelling personally. I, mean, I just don't see how an angel can impregnate a uh, woman. That doesn't make any sense to me. Anyways, instead, I interpret the spirits in prison as the ones who refused to hear Noah's call to repentance, who died in the flood and then found themselves in Hades. God waited patiently for them to repent, which is the imagery Peter later uses in regards to the second coming in 2 Peter 3, 6-9. Jesus, not willing that any should perish and desiring all to be saved, offered salvation to them as well. He proclaimed the good news to the dead so that they might live in the Spirit according to the will of God. 1 Peter 4, 6. Many of the Church Fathers held similar interpretations of this confusing passage. While I know that this is an appeal to authority, which is a logical fallacy, their testimonies show that I'm not alone in viewing this passage this way. I've got three citations. You can go read those on my blog. Uh, For one, they're kind of lengthy. Two, I'm not going to try to pronounce and mispronounce some of these names, (laughs) but, you know, just know that there's there's church fathers out there who took it this way, including Origen and Clement of Alexandria and some folks. And I've got two quotations on my blog if you want to go look at those. If you want more, you can go find them online. They're kind of all over the place, but you know, you'll. know if you need my help, I'll help you out. The point about this, though, is that God is righteous and God is love. If we can trust in those two points, which are really the same point, then I think we can trust that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. How it all worked out, or how it all will work out may be unknown to us, but we can trust that mercy triumphs over judgment, and that the good news is in fact good news, even for people like you and me who are on the boat on one instance, and the tent at another, right? And people like you and me who struggle with these sorts of questions. I think it's it's a sign of a healthy outlook on life that you struggle with questions like this. I mean, it's hard to justify from a human perspective. And I know people say God can do what God wants and everything like that, but God also needs to be consistent uh, you know, with who Jesus is, what would Jesus do? And so I think these questions are worth asking, and the debate and the discussion that comes from asking these questions is worth it as well. Let me give you a little thought here as well. All of what we've talked about assumes a pretty straightforward reading of Genesis. When Genesis 6, 1 through 11 may not, have to be read as literally as we've talked about here today. And that's going to be my last suggestion to you. If you want to know more about that, maybe we could discuss it later. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining and God bless.